The sports world has been greening itself for most of the century, but despite these efforts, most fans have no idea. That changes now. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. Hosted by Lou Blaustein, Green Sports Pod highlights the successes, challenges, and opportunities to green the games we love to watch and play, and give you the chance to hear from the athletes who are taking positive environmental actions. Learn more and subscribe to the show today at greensportsblog.com. Hi there, I'm Lou Blaustein, your host for Green Sports Pod. And before we start, I hope everyone who's listening in is doing as well as possible during this challenging coronavirus public health crisis that we're living through right now. And the coronavirus is the jumping off point for today's episode two of Green Sports Pod. About three weeks ago, almost ancient history in coronavirus time, right? I wrote a piece in Green Sports blog entitled, What If Sports Reacted to Climate Change the Way It's Reacting to the Coronavirus? In it, I imagined a world in which extreme weather events caused by climate change were so frequent and so ferocious that they were no longer extreme. They were just the new normal. They were just weather. And then I imagined how Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NFL and NHL would respond in coronavirus-like urgency. No more lavish Super Bowl halftime shows because the carbon footprint was simply too high. The NBA would play some games outdoors to reduce air conditioning-related carbon emissions, etc., etc. Well, today we're going to delve into what it would look like if some individual sports dove into the climate crisis with urgency. And we're going to do so with Dr. Maddie Orr, the founder of Sport Ecology Group and one of the leading minds of the green sports movement. When I want to know where the green sports movement is going and really should go, I get on the phone with Maddie Orr. Maddie, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have the conversation. Yes. And first of all, just for our listeners who aren't familiar, talk a little bit about Sport Ecology Group. So the Sport Ecology Group is a online collaborative of academics who study sport and the natural environment. And so that might look like sustainability research, but sometimes it looks like climate vulnerability or adaptation to climate change. And so that's what leads us into this conversation is some of that work on adaptation and how we learn from experiences past to be more ready for future experiences related to environmental threats. And one thing that really excites me about Sport Ecology Group, which is around Earth Day, will be celebrating its first anniversary and congratulations. One thing that really excites me is that Sport Ecology Group takes the surprisingly to some vast amount of academic research that exists in the sports sustainability sector and makes it digestible for practitioners in sports and sustainability. And I would imagine that in this coronavirus reality that we are now in, that being able to digest these academic works will be very important once sports gets back up and running or even in the hiatus. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we talk about a lot over in the ivory tower of academia is that it can't be an ivory tower anymore. We have to 
make our research more accessible to folks who are on the front lines, who are making the decisions and calling the shots on the field in the front office. And so if we can make research more accessible to them, then we will have done a good service to the industry. Well, I already know that in its first year, Sport Ecology Group has done a tremendous service. So with that as backdrop, let's talk about the first sport I'd like to chat about is golf, because golf is very much an environmentally challenged sport, and it's a sport that is in the natural world. It's played on grass, on sand. It has water, and it takes a lot of water to manage a golf course, to tend a golf course. So let's imagine a climate emergency that is as serious as what we're experiencing now with coronavirus and what might golf be able to do? With golf, there's a couple different ones. It really depends on where you are. If you are in the West, then forest fires are already as simple as having a really good contingency plan for reopening after a disaster. It might be as simple as putting a contingency budget together and having it grow every year. And in other cases, it's going to look something like reorienting the whole course. And having, instead of hole number seven being next to the water, it's got to come in a few meters and we have to change what that looks like. And so there's going to be changes depending on where you are and you have to understand what's coming in your region and then adjust as necessary and be proactive about it. Let's take that out to the extreme. So imagine that a coronavirus equivalent, and I don't mean to be glib about this, but let's say You're talking about instead of a five-year drought in California, you're talking about a 15-year drought. And can then golf courses, both for the public and also the ones that the pro tournaments are played on in places that are suffering like that, might they have to be brown instead of verdant green? That's a huge possibility. Any turf manager will tell you that they're taking every step they can to mitigate this. Any person who works directly with nature is well aware of these challenges, right? If you look at golf, if you look at turf managers and other sports, if you look at people who manage ski mountains, they're on the front lines of this. They see it day to day. They know what the rain patterns are. They know how they're changing year to year and what to do about it. The challenge is going to be, what are we willing to give up to preserve the sport? So are we willing to give up that the grass is literally green? Or are we willing to give up a certain arrangement of the course? Are we willing to give up the competitiveness of the course in order to preserve the opportunity to play at all? Or are we protecting those aspects of the game at the risk of others? And so those are some decisions that are going to have to be made. Again, it's going to look different depending on where you are. And as you say, it's going to look different depending on whether you're a public course or if you are a championship caliber course. And in those cases, you might be looking at, and it sounds horrible, but buying more land expanding your course so that if you have to pivot to a slightly different arrangement of what holes go in what order, you can do that pending certain disasters impacting parts of the course and not others. And so there's going to be decisions to be made. It's going to depend course to course on how that gets done, depending on where they are and what level of experience they're looking to offer. Where is the discussion now in terms of environment, climate, and golf at the superintendent level? What are they thinking about through your own research and through your experience with golf? I'll be honest, golf is doing a really good job of being aware of the threats. They're not under any illusion that golf is immune to the natural environment. They've seen all kinds of pests come in and destroy certain parts of courses. They've seen these kinds of things before. Many have experienced droughts. Many have experienced heavy rainfall. They know. There's a couple organizations that I think are really at the forefront of this. 
RNA, which is a big kind of overarching organization based in the UK, they've been doing research on sustainability for a very long time, exploring opportunities to be greener while being smarter about how they operate to be resilient in the face of some of these climate vulnerabilities. There's also Geo Foundation or Sustainable Golf Foundation. They actually provide practical solutions. So they're working on the day-to-day with high-level managers in the industry, offering really good insight into what to expect and how to pivot or adapt based on that. So golf has done a good job of organizing and being prepared for some of these imminent challenges in a way that others have been a little slower. On the other hand, where I think green sports needs to go is to communicate the climate crisis through sports. It seems to me that in terms of golf communicating that there's a climate issue, much less the climate crisis on the scale of coronavirus, that they're not really doing it at this point. How might that look going forward? Getting this out to players, getting this out to fans, getting this out to the golf world. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a question that applies to all sports. I think there's not a single sport right now as an institution that's doing a great job of highlighting climate change. There's great organizations that are kind of parallel to sports. So Protect Our Winters, for example, is doing a great job of advocacy, but the ski industry itself isn't. And there's a couple of reasons for that, why they don't talk about it, why they're not great at talking about it. One of them is that they were never taught to. People who work in sport marketing offices and sport communication offices, they weren't necessarily trained in school or haven't been trained on the job since to talk about climate change. It can be a daunting topic. Another reason that they typically don't talk about it and don't promote the challenges of climate change is it doesn't happen often enough. And what I mean by that is you're not seeing, I mean, in some places in golf, you literally are seeing annual issues, but in most cases, you're not seeing coronavirus level issues on a regular basis. And so it's easy to brush them off as a one-off. And then a third reason is it's very scary to admit that your company or your whole business model is vulnerable. And being vulnerable out loud to the public and saying, hey, actually, our sport might be at risk here and we need to do something urgent about that. From a business standpoint, you don't want to be admitting that out loud. And so it's going to take a whole shift in how we manage our triple bottom line and how we consider our business and how we interact with our fans. It's going to take some major shifts to get us to the point where you can admit vulnerability out loud where we're teaching future sport communicators to communicate about climate change. There's a lot of work that has to be done in that space. I totally agree. And I look at it as an opportunity because I think the communications vehicles that are available through advertising or public service announcements through all sports, golf included, would be powerful, could be made compelling, could be made to be upbeat and not doomsday-ish and yet be substantive, I think it's there. Now it's just, how do we get there? I have a couple of funny theories about that. One is that the notion of you win some, you lose some in sport is familiar to everybody. Nobody expects you're going to win all the time. And so we already have some of the words and some of the narratives to have a discussion about what it looks to lose something or, or some things once in a while. But I also think that there's a huge opportunity here to tell a story of a happy ever after for sport. If we get this right, if we act on climate change now, if we prepare resilient golf courses and ski mountains and make every building hurricane proof and fireproof or whatever else it is you need, depending on where you live and what your clientele looks like, if we build resilience, we can tell a really cool happily ever after story of 
when we get this right, here's the benefits you can expect. Here's how much better sport's going to be. Here's how much better your life is going to be. Your kids are going to play outside again, like they did in the 50s and 60s with much less fear and in much better conditions environmentally. Asthma is going to go down. Here's all the things we can accomplish. And we don't tell that story. We talk about climate change as doom and gloom, and it always has a negative connotation to it. We pressure sport organizations into talking about climate change from the standpoint of, if you don't do it, your business will suffer. What we need to be talking about is when you do talk about climate change, these are all the positive outcomes that you can benefit from. Here's all the plus sides of this story that we're not telling that we should. And sport loves a Cinderella story. So let's start telling that one. Let's start talking about what happens when we get it right. And let's work towards getting it right. Because one of the things we're learning from coronavirus that it's being reinstated over and over is sport isn't special. It's part of the same shared humanity with everybody else. And it's going to be hit the same way as everybody else. And so it might be a little insulated in some cases, if it's professional sport, and they've got tons of money, they might be a little insulated from some of these shocks. But for the most part, they're going to experience them, it's coming. And so how do we start telling happily ever after stories of what happens when we work together, get the job done, and produce these awesome positive outcomes that alternatively, if we don't do those actions could produce catastrophe. What we need to talk about, in short, is the climate comeback. And it's time to start now. Absolutely. So now pivoting from golf, let's look at another individual sport, tennis, which is played on a much smaller field, in this case, a court. But we also saw the impacts on tennis at the Australian Open. We've seen it at several Australian Opens, actually, in January this year, of course, with the massive bushfires in Australia, impacted the qualifying rounds of the tournament with players being engulfed by smog and not being able to continue. Other years, because it's played in the middle of the Victoria, Australia summer, the heat gets up well above 114, 115 degrees Fahrenheit and has caused play to stop. Where do you see tennis as it relates to the COVID-19-esque climate emergency? Well, I think with tennis, much like with COVID-19, I mean, tennis is seeing these challenges happening live in real time. Like you said, the Australian Open is a great example. From 1997 to 2008, they had about five days in the course of the tournament per year that hit above that 29 degrees Celsius, so that around that 100 degrees mark. And that was kind of rare. It would happen midday. It wouldn't last very long. What we're starting to see now, so since 2010, we're seeing upwards of seven days of extreme heat in the tournament. Holy cow. That's about half of the tournament, maybe slightly less, right? Yeah, it's just about a day or two short of half the tournament. So that means that you're looking at, you need to build in more water breaks. We have to take care of the athletes. We also have to take care of the fans. And one of the things that is becoming evident is that these conversations to shift how the game works involves far more people than just the fans, just the athletes, or just the organizers. And so I'll give you an example. If you were to build in an extra water break, the media also is going to be part of that conversation. They have very expensive contracts to cover those events. And if all of a sudden the play is going to be slower on days that are above certain degrees in order to give more water breaks, they need to be ready for that so that they can push advertising in that time slot. It does get very tricky because you're now navigating stakeholders on a number of levels in order to do something as simple as add an extra water break into the game. But there's some interesting pieces that can happen in tennis and are happening in tennis. 
increasingly we're seeing facilities, especially competition facilities and venues, build in cooling rooms. Cooling rooms do a whole lot for the body. There is no human body that can take temperature at that level and exert themselves to that level and be okay. There's nothing about heat exhaustion that has to do with how fit you are. There is no amount of fitness that's going to prevent you from getting heat exhaustion. That has to do with how much hydration you have and how much cooling you can access. So can we get cooling towels involved in the play? Can we make new costumes, new tennis gear that keeps you cooler for longer? Is there a way to have cooling towels on the side of the court that immediately come onto the athletes every time the game stops? What can we do to cool down those bodies as often as we can? Another big one, and I think this is a little more far out, but it's going to come up pretty soon, is we need to think about new competition schedules. It doesn't make sense to play tennis in the heat of the summer in Australia anymore, given that that is when you're most likely to have wildfires. And so not only are you experiencing greater heat, you're experiencing poor air quality. And now that's a double whammy on that body. And that affects the athletes as much as it affects the fans in the audience, the people running the television cameras. I don't know if you've ever held a television camera. I did it once and felt like I was going to fall down. Those things are heavy. And those ball kids running around. I mean, I know they're 17 or whatever, but it's brutal or the lines people. Well, again, and it has nothing to do with how fit you are no person's body is meant to exert themselves in that kind of temperature. It's not a human thing. And so these are things that we have to start really paying attention to. And it might look like shifting the competition schedule just a little bit. It might look like having more games played inside. I know that's one approach that the US has taken very seriously is how can we put more games under roof cover? It might look like having more shaded courts. I'm not really sure what they're going to come up with. I'm excited to see it. But there's been a slow roll over several years to have incremental changes to tennis. And what I think has to happen pretty soon is major sweeping changes to how we manage heat and heat exhaustion in those conditions. That makes me think actually, though, it's a great point that if you have to move more indoors, and I believe the Australian Open site in Melbourne has three covered arenas that are air conditioned, which of course are just advertisements for greenhouse gas gluttony, unless you can power those buildings by renewable energy. So I think the more environmentally climate emergent way of doing it would be to move the Australian Open from January, which is the height of their summer, to sometime in February after the Super Bowl, it's not as hot in February in Melbourne. Similarly, the U.S. Open at late August, early September can be brutal and likely will be more brutal. That could be something that would need to move as well eventually. And because it may be that in a climate emergent world, we just cannot justify playing these games under air conditioning situations. Another thought and now this is really something that this coronavirus coverage has brought to mind. The first night of the Australian Open, the main draw, ESPN comes on in the US and they were John McEnroe and Chris Everett and Chris McKendry and maybe one other were like talking about the weather and the bushfire effect on the qualifiers. And McEnroe really wanted to get into it. The others wanted to just mention it and then get on to tennis, when are the broadcasters going to start having experts talk about it on air with climate as part of it, not just a, a meteorologist talking about how hot it is, 
like we see all these experts talking about the public health issues surrounding coronavirus? When it becomes a health issue. So like if you look at when the athletes have been uncomfortable in these conditions for a very long time, if you talk to athletes about playing in really hot conditions, they've been talking about it. This isn't new. What is new is that athletes are now fainting on the court, fans are fainting in the stands. When it becomes a public health issue or a physical health issue, that's when the media tends to cover it. And there's a reason that coronavirus is so huge right now. So when it bleeds, it leads in media. And the second that we start to see more health issues come from this, which are coming fast, the faster we're going to start seeing media coverage would be my expectation. I totally agree there. What I want to see is with that increased media coverage, having a climate expert as part of it on stage with Chris Everett or whoever to talk about, hey, this is climate change. This is what we're going to be seeing. What should we be looking at? You people, Chris Everett, John McEnroe, whoever I'm talking to in the future were players. What do you think? And engage the discussion that way. I think you should be talking to ESPN about how to cover this. How about that? Yeah. I mean, get me Catherine Hayhoe, put Michael Mann on the screen. And the other piece is, so we do some of this work and we really enjoy it. We're ESPN, if you're listening, we'll talk to you. But there are some really cool kinesiologists who are doing this work. We will increasingly be promoting them through the sport ecology groups, networking and programming over the next couple of months. So if you continue following some of us on Twitter, you're going to start to see that. But there are some brilliant scientists doing work with heat exhaustion, with tennis, with runners. And we're going to start promoting some of those people. And I can tell you that within the next month, we're going to start hearing from Dr. Doug Kaza at UConn. He's been doing this work for a very long time, an expert in managing heat and heat-related illness in athletes. There are some great perspectives there as well. And I think those really need to come to the fore and not be held behind the scenes. Amen. And speaking of running, let's talk about long-distance running marathons which are totally different than a sport played out on the green grass like golf or a sport played in a stadium like tennis. Now we're talking about a sport where people are running on hard pavement where it could be really hot through cities where you have million plus people along the route. What will that look like in a climate emergent future? Marathons are a big one. This is something that's already happening. If you look at just the last six months, Tokyo's marathon was impacted by coronavirus. Three or four different marathons across Eastern Asia were impacted by hurricanes. They don't call them hurricanes over there. They're tropical cyclones. But tropical cyclones in the fall, if you look at all the way back to the fall and Qatar, Qatar hosted or Doha hosted the International Athletics Federation World Championship and the marathon event actually got pushed to midnight because of the heat and even running in the middle of the night in the dark. There was a good number of people in that field, the best athletes in the world at marathon who did not complete the race. And so we are starting to see this become an issue already. Like you say, things are going to change. We're going to start to probably see some shifting schedules and alternative dates, both from shifting out of daytime into either evening hours or really early morning. We're probably going to see some new routes take place. So I was just at the New York Marathon this past season, and Alexandria Chris Cuolo, who's the sustainability manager for them, is brilliant. And I have every confidence that she and the team there are working on some good solutions here. But there are some big stretches of certain marathons that, in the light of day, run right under the sun. It wouldn't be that hard to move them a block or two over or shift it by an hour or two to put them in the shade. And that's some of the 
efforts that I'm expecting to see because that would not change the date of the marathon. It might change the time a little bit, but the route to more shady areas. And then more water stations are allowing professional runners on the course to carry water. That's something currently they're not allowed to have headphones and water and all these things, but that might be something we see change in the future as a health measure. And so marathons are heavily hit. Like you say, it's long-term exertion over very hot pavement. And in some cases, potentially very dangerous for athletes to be doing that. And so the more we can look at shady routes, more opportunities for water, shifting schedules to alternative dates or alternative locations is going to be something we have to really seriously consider. And I know that there's a number of race directors who see this threat already, and they're taking those steps. This is something out of all the sports we're talking about, to me, that's as here and now as any. And one thing that I'm intrigued about, and I don't know if you read about it, Maddie, but I'm guessing you have out in the Netherlands and other places in Europe, they're experimenting with both solar roads and also kinetic roads where friction, i.e. from a wheel going over a road or from people running on it, will generate energy. And how cool would it be to run a marathon on one of these roads so it would be, in essence, energy positive, where the runners would be creating clean energy? I think that'd be really interesting. There's a lot of opportunity here. I think that when you're looking at some of these solar roads that are being experimented with, we also have to consider the amount of heat that is being produced on that surface. So I don't know that necessarily like you would want a really tired, hot runner on that road, because if they collapse, that might actually be too hot. But these are some things that as they work through those challenges and make those roads person ready, that would be definitely a really cool opportunity for the marathon industry to jump on. Absolutely. And now in the few minutes left, one more sport I want to hit on, which is skiing, which probably impact on skiing would be number one, two, and three of any sports out there. So what can be done? They're already in an emergency. Skiing's been in an emergency for 10 years. If you look at out West in 2013, 14, they had a couple seasons where Tahoe and some of the big mountains were closing as much as a month early. This is a trend that will continue, unfortunately. And so there's some measures that can be taken to alleviate some of that climate stress. Already, we're seeing more snowmaking. Snowmaking came about in the 60s, got popular in the 70s, but now we are fully dependent on snowmaking in some parts of the Northeast not only to extend the season and improve the conditions, but really to make skiing possible, period. The issue with snowmaking is that it really only works under certain cold conditions. If it's not cold outside, snowmaking doesn't work. You can't will it into existence. If it hits the ground and melts, you have nothing. And so I think we're going to see more plastic mats, so more fake, I guess, runs. We might see more indoor runs. I think that'd be a shame. I know that The other day, you and I were speaking ahead of this podcast, we were talking about Atlanta and them trucking in tons of snow. I think that's very misguided. I don't think now is the time to be putting snow in places it doesn't belong. I think the idea would be keep the snow in the cold places and add it to the areas that are suffering from not enough snow, but already have the infrastructure. And so truck that snow up to the low-lying areas of Vermont or New York State or New Hampshire that they already have the infrastructure, they could use buckets of snow. Atlanta does not have the conditions for that. So why are we trying to make it happen there? Because you had mentioned indoor skiing. What do you think of this trend where we're seeing it? For example, I'm in New York City, maybe eight miles west of me is in the Meadowlands of New Jersey next to MetLife Stadium where the Jets and Giants play is this massive 
indoor mall called American Dream that opened recently, and it features an indoor ski slope. And again, to me, as someone who's concerned about climate, I look at this and say, this is the exact opposite of what we should be doing. And it just shows that the people who are running that facility say, we don't really care. Yeah, I think one of the things we will learn from coronavirus, or I really hope we do, is when to stop. There are imminent challenges coming with climate change. Should we be taking all measures to preserve things that don't make sense in a new climate future? No. There's a term that gets used actually in urban planning called managed retreat, which is where we consider what things and what areas and what industries we should be stepping away from and building into others. And so one example would be can we lose certain parts of the shore in Florida and help those people find shelter elsewhere, move them, move those industries elsewhere ahead of time so that it doesn't become an economic crisis when it does happen? I think that that's what skiing has to start thinking about. So it's not about going indoors. I think that's a catastrophe from every standpoint. An economic standpoint, those things don't tend to last. And also from environment and health standpoint, it's not the same experience. It's not as good. I'm a skier, so I'm biased, but you really don't want to be skiing indoors. That defeats the purpose. Absolutely not. Yeah. So I think that that's the wrong move. I think the right move would be to start looking at where ski resorts can diversify their offerings. I'm thinking of how in the 60s, I mean, earlier than this, but the 50s, 60s, 70s, we saw a huge surge in rollerblading. How do we find the summer equivalent of skiing in the same way that rollerblading might be a good equivalent for hockey players? And so I think there's some opportunities to diversify the offerings. I think that building resorts, ski resorts, that can be year-round destinations. So how do we revive some of the camping ideals and the hiking that happened at family summer camp resorts in the 60s and 70s? How do we find that kind of opportunity to turn ski resorts into summer tourism sites as well? That's where we need to be going because all the data shows that in the Northeast, only a handful of mountains will be viable by 2060 and then even fewer by 2100. And so if we look at what the future is going to hold, we need to start diversifying our opportunities very quickly, not moving them to places where they're even more jeopardized by climate. Again, I hearken back to the way media covers it and also now looping in something like the International Olympic Committee. We need to be having these mega events in places that are able to host them without all sorts of artificial snow and heroic measures to make it a winter place, i.e. no more Sochi's and more Lillehammer's, basically. Completely. Like it's basic, but it's exactly what has to happen. I think if you look at where events are being held, you have to consider what's going to happen there long term. And so if the big push right now is for the Olympics to be sustainable and for the legacy to be sustainable, that has to happen across all levels. And what that might look like is backing away from places where it might be doable right now, but three, four, five, 10, 20 years from now, that place won't be viable for snow anymore. And so don't build a bobsled arena there or bobsled track that is viable for 10 years, but will have no long-term legacy or sustainable potential. There's a lot of questions that are going to come to the fore with mega events. I think they're doing a good job of trying to tackle it. I think it's a huge beast and it changes every time the event changes hands. So every time they go to a new place, it's a new set of challenges. It's a new government. And the IOC, I think, is doing its best. I think it's got its work cut out for them. There's going to be some major structural changes to the event. And Tokyo 2020 and coronavirus is exactly an example of the IOC can do its best, 
And still, there are factors beyond their control that can throw everything asunder. And that brings us to what I would like to be our final point for this podcast, which is to widen the lens a bit from the specific sports we've been talking about and discuss exactly this idea of exogenous events and sports, meaning coronavirus and sports, increased extreme weather, which because it's going to be more frequent, we won't call it extreme weather anymore. We will just call it weather. And how has sports been dealing with exogenous events up to this point? And how should they deal with it? And Maddie, I give you the floor. There's a lot of things that coronavirus and climate crisis have in common. They will take lives. They will be global. There is good and evolving science to support what should be done about it. And for sport, they are exogenous threats, like you said. So there's not a whole lot that the sport industry can do to prevent them or stop them, but we can be ready to manage them when they happen. And I think what is happening right now in the sport industry is that unlike many circumstances in the past, sport is currently at the forefront. Adam Silver was one of the first to shut down a major operation by shutting down the NBA last, I guess, Wednesday, before this all really kind of blew up. But If you think about the sport industry, when we say that sport has the power to change the world, we typically are talking about an athlete or one or two people who go against the sport machine and challenge it to change the world. So the USTA was not at the forefront, if you look at it, of gender equity in sport or gender equity pay. That was Billie Jean King and her associates, the women who stood with her and took pay cuts and went against the grain and got a lot of flack for it. If you look at Muhammad Ali's messaging. That was not the boxing institutions that were doing that. That was Muhammad Ali, again, going against the grain and pressuring them into change. Colin Kaepernick is at the forefront of some of the racial discussions currently happening. That is not the NFL. That is not the sport machine. That is Colin Kaepernick and his associates and people who are supporting him. And so I think we have to reconsider when we say sport has the potential to change the world and push a conversation. It has never been the institutions of sport. It has always been a few people who go out of their way to be champions of a cause. And we're seeing that more and more. But for the first time here with coronavirus, all of sport is recognizing a huge exogenous threat. All of sport is working together to minimize the risk to all the fans and the participants. And I think that all of sport has to do the same thing with climate change. We have to recognize exogenous threats. We have to put contingency plans in place. We have to know when to stop with notions of growth and continuing play at all costs. And we need to build networks of supporters and contracts with suppliers and sponsors and media that protect those opportunities to shut the doors when we have to temporarily to protect people or to continue paying people in times of disruption or do what we have to do to protect sport opportunities, protect all the people involved, and be leaders in this space. So in other words, we have to move from vulnerability to resilience. And the only way to move from vulnerability to resilience is with experience, and we're getting that with coronavirus, and targeted action. And we're starting to see a little bit of that. So I'm excited about what this might mean for the climate movement in sport. I think recognizing that sport is not immune to the threats that are threatening humanity right now is going to be a good eye-opener. And I'm inspired by how fast sport has responded. And I think that if they show that same concern to climate crisis, we could see the needle change on this or the needle move a little bit. Well, Maddie, I'm glad that you cited 
Billie Jean King and Muhammad Ali. I'm not going to make such a glib comparison, but it just occurred to me as you were talking about that, that you go against the grain. And that is why you are an important voice in the green sports movement, pushing the movement to faster and maybe in ways that it doesn't want to go quite yet. And I believe that that's why your voice is so important. So first of all, before I say thank you, where can we find Sport Ecology Group on the internet? Well, I'm just going to correct you there. I'm one of many people speaking for climate action, and you're one of them. There are some excellent people working on Sport Positive Summit, GSA, Seas in Australia, Basis in the UK, you name it. They're all out there fighting the good fight, and I really tip my hat to them. A lot of them have been responsible for inspiring me and bringing me up in this space. So I am not a champion. I am one of a thousand people doing this really cool work. We're on a team. Yes. Regarding Sport Ecology Group, you can find us at sportecology.org. Our whole website's there. All of our contact information is on the About Us page. We actually, every single one of us has our personal emails on there. So we're pretty easy to reach. And please do reach out if you're having any of these conversations at your organization, in the media, wherever they're happening. We want to be part of it and we want to support those conversations. Yes, do what she said. Go to sportecology.org. And thank you so much, Maddie, for being part of Green Sports Pod and for this discussion on how the sports world can act with more alacrity, a la as humanity is trying to do on coronavirus. And we will see you next time on Green Sports Pod. You've been listening to Green Sports Pod, hosted by Lou Blaustein. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And head on over to greensportsblog.com, the source for news and commentary at the intersection of green and sports. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Green Sports Pod.